Hello, and welcome to Raising Health, where we explore the real challenges and enormous opportunities facing entrepreneurs who are building the future of health. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode is with Julie Klapstein, the newest advisory partner on the Bio and Health team. She is joined by Julie Yu, general partner at A16Z Bio and Health. Together, they talked about Julie Klapstein's career, which has spanned decades in the field of healthcare IT. The payers were very much focused on their huge back office claims processing systems that were all batch. They took them down at night, they Mm -hmm. took them down on weekends. There really was no exchange really between providers and payers other than paper. And the new thing, fax machines. So uh, pretty pretty bad back then. They also talk about Julie's experience building and operating at scale with a focus on the network effects she's seen at Availity and Multiplan. Finally, they get into what she's excited about for the future. AI, (laughs) machine learning. (laughs) Good answer. um, Well, it's the right answer. Like I was excited about the internet, you know, and it's really fun to watch these companies be able to take old systems and think of new ways to negotiate rev cycle or clinical decision support. Coding, coding's been backwards for so long. We finally have an opportunity to totally change that. You're listening to Raising Health from A16Z Bio and Health. Welcome to The Julie Show. We have two Julies here, myself and the amazing Julie Klapstein, who is a newly minted advisory partner with us here at ACCZ. And she's also been a CEO and a multi-time exec at a string of very iconic healthcare companies, or at least they are iconic to those who know them. And you know, part of why I was excited to have this conversation is that uh, Julie has been involved in at least a couple of companies that I personally call the most interesting platform companies in healthcare that you've never heard of. And so we're very excited to hear more about those stories, Julie. Thanks so much for being here with us uh, here today. Thank you, Julie. You've obviously been in healthcare technology across you know, several eras of how the industry has evolved. How did you get started in this space? I uh, started right out of college uh, in a real job at AT&T, and they assigned me to the healthcare industry. And uh, that was early on. I was in sales, uh, sales management. I sold to hospitals and physician offices uh, throughout the West Coast. I did really well in it and got promoted a few times like they do in AT&T. But then uh, I moved into other healthcare information technology companies after 10 years at AT&T. I was senior executive at two hospital information system companies, uh, senior VP of client services and product and uh, SunQuest, which was a lab information system primarily with order entry. And on the side, I did a claims management system for payers. I ran a utilization management, case management software company for health plans. And uh, I then ended up at Availity. How do you think about the different eras of healthcare IT and now digital health? And, and you know, what, what are you excited about as far as um, how it's evolved in, in recent years? So back in the 80s, a lot of uh, focus was still on the provider side on the hospital and the physician office. So on the hospital side, it was all about patient accounting, patient registration, general ledger, and they were just starting to think about ancillary services like lab and dietary pharmacy and automating those. Nothing was automated. It was almost all paper and uh, certainly not very much exchange to anybody on the outside because there was no internet. 
the payers were very much focused on their huge back office claims processing systems that were all batch. They took them down at night, mm -hmm. they took them down on weekends, and uh, there really was no exchange really between providers and payers other than paper. And the new thing, fax machines. So uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty bad back then. You, you go into the 90s. That was kind of an exciting time because there was a lot of pressure on costs and there was talk of a universal health system and HMOs and PPOs were coming in to Vogue. And so a lot of the systems that were primarily focused on the accounting side and the hospitals moved over to the ambulatory side. And we started to see true laboratory information systems, radiology systems, scheduling systems, dietary, et cetera. The problem was, of course, a lot of them were best of breed and they didn't all integrate. So there were lots of people in the integration business trying to make them all fit together and work. Along came larger hospital information systems, one of which I worked for, SMS, and they took all of these one-offs and best of breed, grouped them together, made them work, and offered them as a total hospital system. Very elementary. No electronic medical records back then. Skip over to 2000 when I started at Availity. There's so much happened in that era. First of all, it's the internet. It just changed everything. Healthcare, of course, was one of the last to adopt. And so along came then HIPAA and then Meaningful Use, which you had to certify as an EMR vendor, your product. That caused an explosion of EMR systems. And then you started seeing more portals, um, mainly on the provider side for different things. But what you did see back then was uh, every payer, like United had their own portal, Aetna had a portal, Cigna had a portal, the Blues each had a portal, and everybody thought that was their proprietary thing. So what I saw immediately when I was hired is this is the time, you know, and I'd been thinking this. They said, we have a huge provider satisfaction problem. Humana and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Florida have decided to get together, use the internet, and somehow make the providers happier. So started the company. It took off, literally. Uh, when we finally got our product out the door, it took about six months. And remember back then, there's no components. There's no architecture infrastructure for the internet. We had to build all that mm -hmm. and send part it together, uh, make sure it could scale, make sure it responded under five seconds, for a provider or they wouldn't use it, and make sure for the payers that we had 99.9% .9 uptime. So once we had the two payers in Florida, we hit the tipping point, which for us was 50%, it worked. And the rest of the payers that had their own stopped using them and joined us. Then because they saw all the providers move towards us, everybody wanted on, it was free to the providers. The payers paid a tr transaction fee to Ability. And then we really focused for five years just on that region and getting it right. Uh, we forced the payers to have a common look and feel, common content. That made it easier for a front office person that got, gets paid $10 an hour and moves over to the next physician office. They know how to use it. It's availability. They don't want anybody else's system. So we had 85% market share within a year of the entire state and 100% of the hospitals. But just to rewind a little bit, when you talked about EHRs, you know, you obviously were presumably at a company that w maybe competed with Epic and Cerner. What was the landscape like back then? And was it clear that someone like an Epic was going to be the breakout success in the future? Absolutely not. 
before 2000, it was HBOC and SMS on the hospital side. And Epic was unheard of. Cerner was coming along because Cerner competed with my company, SunQuest Information Systems. But they took what was a lab system and expanded it with best of breed solutions and their own organic growth and built a total hospital system. So Cerner was early on in that. And then Epic started regionally and you know, really focused on the EMR and with meaningful use, et cetera. Uh, they really took off. I mean, they did an amazing job. Amazing. So you already talked a little bit about the origin story, but it's quite remarkable that it, it's one of these rare case studies where you have competing health plans come together and play nice with each other to the you know point of actually starting a company together. How, how did that work? You know, talk us through like, what was the thing that got them to come together? And how did that sort of flywheel then persist across the broader health plan universe? Well, we kept it small. So the governance was controllable. I think if we had added every payer onto our board or something, it just wouldn't have worked. We defined it as whoever was the blue and in that region, they were the main one that would go first because they had 35% plus market share. So if you take just Florida, it's the two of them. And then we said, we want to expand outside of Florida. Let's bring on another owner. So we had the structure working and the governance working and the guiding principles and the primary uh, types of applications like claim status. You had to be able to take a real-time claim. You had to do eligibility and benefits. You had to be able to do a referral. All four of those had to be working or they couldn't get their ownership position. That kind of got everybody in the same groove. And we kept reminding everyone, and we had to remind them, we're Switzerland, we used to say. We're patients, not paperwork. We're all going to play in the sandbox, and we're not going to have custom code, and we're not going to have one-offs here and there, and everybody's going to agree to do what availability needs, as long as the board says, hey, hey, good. I mean, we obviously got a lot of input from them. But uh, then as we added more and more payers to the network, it was clear that we had it right. And then with HIPAA, we decided to add a claims clearinghouse because it funded all of the other development efforts on the real-time side. So, I mean, we were getting paid per transaction back then, but it wasn't enough uh, until we went nationwide to really get us cash flow positive. So we entered Texas, and we worked out with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, which was owned by HCSC, to take over their, their Texas Health Information Network, which was a clearinghouse. So then we, we had the ability to self-fund. So we didn't need money uh, from then on, obviously, because we charged the payers. And then later, we started charging providers as we started providing more capabilities on their side. Right. And, and so you were sitting at this like very privileged interface between the payers and providers and um, a critical sort of transaction node, so to speak. But it feels like these days, like the payer provider interface is just at a fever pitch of tension. There's lawsuits, there's contract negotiations breaking down, there's finger pointing everywhere. And, you know, obviously a ton of financial pressures just given the dynamics in the industry post pandemic. Is that is that just cyclical? Like, is that something that you've seen not play out over over and over again in history? Or do you think it's particularly bad right now? It's over and over again. 
But what happens mm-hmm. in when there's new regulatory changes that look helpful to one party, it hurts the other party. And so I think it, it makes for a very uh, tense world. The other thing is there isn't any transparency yet. It's coming, you know, with the new rules. And so nobody knows what the other one has. And the payers had all the money. So they have all the information about, you know, everything and all the analytics and actuaries. But I agree with you. It's particularly tense right now. And if you look at it, when we go into a a managed care environment, what they pay us is a fraction of what fee-for-service pays. So that causes tension on the provider side. So they're losing, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And now if you just saw in the paper, managed care is too, right? Because all Mm -hmm. of a sudden hospitalizations started coming through and they got hit. So that makes them put more and more pressure, right? It's the nature of how we we have uh, put together this health system for for better or worse. No. Yeah. Do you think that if ability did not exist and you were to, you know, have a thesis around this concept today, do you think that it would be possible to build a business like this today? Or was there something about the timing of, of when you got started that you think contributed to the appropriate primordial soup that was necessary to get a business like this up and running? I think a lot of it was first mover advantage. I, I do. Uh, the internet was out there. Anybody could have done this. We had a very good board that really believed in what we were doing. And the CEOs of the organizations were very involved and very supportive. Mike McAllister at the time was CEO of Humana. He was out on the road talking about how fabulous Availity was to all the payers and providers, <laughs> everyone. And, you know, I got to go to the White House and, uh, talk to them about it uh, because of, you know, CMS and we had Medicare and Medicaid on it. It was good timing. We had a lot of partnering to do with associations that wanted to come up with their own version of Availity. And we had a few competitors regionally come up and, you know, some of them still exist. But uh, mainly we, we went really fast. Was there anything structural about the industry that made it such that there wasn't a winner take all? dynamic? Like you're, it sounds like basically there are multiple large players who serve this need. and But it seems like uh, one of the few spaces where it would be conducive to a single player owning the end-to-end because, because of the network effects. Why was it the case that it didn't turn out that way? Because we all knew we, had to, we were dependent on each other and there already existed lots of claim systems. Then, and the hospitals all had, you know, their little, their network bridge into them, payers have the same. We were so dependent, like if, if a payer already had somebody signed up as a direct connect on the claim side, there was no reason for them to throw them out and get someone else. So we each had that, and so we were pretty dependent on each other. Yeah, okay, let's switch gears to talk about yet another business that's extremely exciting and, and interesting on which you sit on the board, uh, which is Multiplan. Multiplan is another network effects business. It's a payer provider interface platform business similar to Availity in many ways, but obviously a very different product. Right, and and it's a very different governance structure, as you probably know. Their public company, what they're known for the most is they provide the, the country's largest out-of-network uh, PPO. So if you're a regional plan or even a large commercial health plan, you never have coverage, a national footprint, if you will. You have it if you go to multi-plan. 
because they have 1.3 million providers. And so the likelihood of them covering that region for you makes a regional player be able to compete like a national player. And so they do uh, analytics and data science for the payers. And they also do what's called in the industry payment integrity. So it's the opposite of what providers do. Providers do underpayments. They try to recover money. Uh, They try to recover from denials, et cetera. Well, on the other side, representing the payers is multi-plan. So they negotiate reimbursement for out-of-network, primarily, claims with the providers. They do surprise billing. They're responsible for that pricing. They are representing the payers. Payers don't get involved in it. They, they take it over, and they're contracted to, you know, help the provider define, you know, what they're supposed to pay back or coding problems, et cetera. If the payer hired multi-plan to help them with the reimbursement on the provider side, I mean, they can't go to the health plan, so they couldn't get reimbursed. So for an out-of-network claim, it wouldn't happen because we're, we're their representative. We are the payer, you know, holding the payer flag in that case. And obviously, the provider is very motivated to get reimbursed correctly. Obviously, there's going to be some friction, but Multiplan's pretty good at it. You know, they've been doing it a long time, and they show them exactly what happened and help them correct their problems in the future. A practical example of how Multiplan might play a role in my life. So if I'm an employee of a company, maybe let's say based in San Francisco, but I live in Montana, I'm on the company's insurance plan, but obviously... The core plan will likely only cover providers in California. And so is multi-plan sort of a solution to allow me access to a network of providers outside of the the core region of of where my health plan is based? You got it. And there's so many narrow networks now, right? Mm -hmm. For very specific specialties and all kinds of things. But they still need that broader one so they have a bigger footprint. And Multiplan has a tremendous amount of scale, as you mentioned. They're publicly traded. It's you can see that you know they're close to a billion dollars in revenue at this stage. But how did they get to where they are? Like, what was their origin story? Was there anything comparable to Availity, where you know payers got together and said, "This is an unmet need. Let's go figure out how to build something"? Or was it more? No, actually, it was inorganic uh, primarily. So it started in the 1980s. They bought a company called Emergence, and they brought along large payers. So that was step one. And then uh, PHCS was acquired and a big TPA. And they brought Violet, which is a large provider network as well, as payers. And then they made two or three analytics acquisitions in the last couple of years since I've been on the board. So they pieced it together. So we talked about Ability and we talked about Multiplan. What's fascinating about both of them is that they are networks affects businesses. And, you know, there's very few examples that you can find out in the wild that have successfully executed on that at scale within our universe. So what are some similarities and differences in terms of how they have each executed their path towards having this really powerful network effect in each of their respective areas? The main part is that it's, it is software as a service. I mean, for both of them, when they offer something, especially on Availity side, is, you know, we, we do it all for them, right? We, we do have to connect, and people do have to do HIPAA standards and so forth. 
but we didn't ask them to piece part it together. So the providers just need to connect. Yes, it was tough in the early days because they didn't use the internet. And so we had to persuade their offices and hospitals to let them on the internet uh, and provide security and all those things that they needed. Once the payers knew some of the big blows were on there and Humana was on there and Aetna was on there and Cigna, that was it. They weren't worried anymore, right? Uh, so it's a matter of how do we connect to your claims engine? Do you have a gateway? You know, is it real time? How fast can you respond to us? To that end, one of the common tropes in health tech uh, amongst entrepreneurs is that, you know, building a software only business is actually harder to scale than one that involves some kind of managed service. And I think that's somewhat of a kind of a Bayesian inference from, you know, the historical set of companies that have gotten large in our space. But clearly, we, we just talked about two examples that, you know, did the same, but really as a software modality. Do you agree with that statement at all? How did you think about kind of the software versus services modality while you were running Ability, for instance? I mean, we did provide services, but they were more IT services, right? We're, we're of a software platform. And, but I do understand today how, how hard it is because if you have a component or some application that is not clearly integrated or you don't have like all the integration to Epic or Cerner or all the companies you need to be integrated with, it is hard for today to get the attention of the hospitals or the health plans to work on yours, even though it's critical. I think sometimes it's hard to do is sell the software because it's so hard to get the attention of people that are overwhelmed and understaffed. And uh, they think a piece of software somehow has to be integrated with something and I have no ability to do this. I don't have time, people, expertise, whatever I need. I don't have time. If you could bring that piece of software and show, show me that you've already integrated it to my version of XYZ of Cerner, uh, or Cerner's blessed you, or Epic's blessed you, then I think software can come in. So I think the channel partner side to me, and maybe because it's all my experience at Availity, super important. Yeah. Is making sure you have the right channel partners that have the attention at the top and people trust one throat to choke, you know, where they can bring, bring you in with them. And pretty soon you'd be running the show and your application is going to be more important than everyone else's, but you got to get in the door. You know? Yeah, yeah. We did a previous content series on channel partnerships, and it's clear that that's sort of a, a critical component of any go-to-market strategy, especially in our space, just given the entrenched incumbents. So picking up on what you said, like services in some ways, we're talking about like humans doing certain jobs with, you know, hands-on components. But but in some ways, you could almost think about, you know, what the promise of AI is, is really that it's an automated service and that you could actually take a lot of the tasks that are done manually today and, and sort of encompass it with AI solutions. So, you know, when you were describing the way that people use the ability portals of like someone sitting at a desk, logging into a browser, you know, clicking, I'm sure you've you've imagined ways that, that it could entirely be automated. Yeah. In fact, a lot of that integration is done and ready to go. It doesn't have to have a person that clicks anything, mm -hmm. right, anymore. And it can be all integrated with the, within the EMR system. And really, there's no other way on the back end, on the payer side, they want that all automated. They don't want a human touching it. They actually even want those authorizations and referrals to go through fast. Um, they're not purposely holding them up like a lot of people feel. But, you know, they do have guidelines and contracts and rules and policies. And I think AI is going to be able to help tremendously. 
mean, think if you're a provider and you got into denial as an example, and you're saying, why was this denied? I have an authorization, you know, I have this letter, I have all of this. AI can go tie those transactions together and go look for the data that the payer used to make their decision. The provider now has it and said, approve me, because this shouldn't have been denied. On the other side, the payer doesn't have to have, you know, nurses and medical directors. They can use AI to figure out whether they, it should be approved or denied, you know, based on decision support criteria that are pre-approved. And that's going to speed up the process because it's kind of broken. Okay, so I'm going to ask you about that, Julie. So that I think we we as a we have a double standard in our industry where yes, we lament the fact that like today's processes because they're manual are done super slowly and you're always waiting for a response. And then we now have examples where payers have deployed AI and they've automated the process, and so you get these very speedy responses. But then they're getting sued for use of algorithmic approaches to manage denials. What's your take on that? It reminds me of when clinical data when people refused to exchange it, you know, because it was proprietary. I'm not trying to say it's silly, but it's just a roadblock because it's new and people are insecure (laughs) about it. I think that that's my personal views. And uh, to get sued because the, the person used the exact same algorithms to turn you down in the first place, just because a machine is doing it. But maybe once it's transparent what the machine did, maybe that'll calm it down a little bit. But I think fear of the unknown and the dislike between the parties, frankly, the algorithms that the payers use, I mean. I think that's a good take that it's just the newness of it that people are reacting to. I mentioned that you've recently joined us as an advisory partner here at A16Z, which we're thrilled about. And what are you excited about as we go into 2024? AI, (laughs) machine learning. (laughs) We, um, Good answer. It, it, well, it's the right answer. Like I was excited about the internet, you know, and it's really fun to watch these companies be able to take old systems and think of new ways to negotiate RevCycle or clinical decision support. Coding. Coding's been backwards for so long. We finally have an opportunity to totally change that. I mean, everybody says, oh, what, do you think AI will work? Are you kidding me? I mean, that's what they said about the internet. It's never going to work. You know? Exactly. And uh, in, in healthcare, and it will, you know, especially after they start seeing tremendous savings. I mean, we have such a massive staffing shortage in healthcare, on, in hospitals and payers and vendors and everywhere that we have no choice. I mean, we have to use these tools in order to continue operating. There's millions and millions and millions of dollars being lost. And it, it's ridiculous because there's not enough money spent on IT in mm-hmm. order to automate. It's a chicken or the egg, but it has to be done. Great, I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much, Julie, for spending time with us. Really enjoyed your commentary. And I'm sure people learned a ton about these amazing companies that you've been, been involved in and um, are inspired to go build the next generation of similar infrastructure companies. Well, I'm very excited to be part of A16Z. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Raising Health. Raising Health is hosted and produced by me, Chris Tatiosian, and me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z. The show is edited by Phil Hegseth. If you want to suggest topics for future shows, you can reach us at raisinghealth at a16z.com. Finally, please rate and subscribe to our show.
The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com slash disclosures.